Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Checkout it's a podcast that you have subscribed to. Yes, have you? <laughs> Hopefully you have. On Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, all of our shows archived on checkoutjazz.org, NPR One. I'm your host, Simon Retner. Pianist, composer, and thinker Vijay Iyer is always a welcome guest on this show. It's never a bad idea to get the chance to showcase his artistry, for sure, especially when it's rendered with a Manfred Eicher treatment. His latest recording, Uneasy, is his seventh for ECM, and hopefully there will be another dozen to come in the future. On previous shows, uh, we've always talked about the music, either his own or composers, artists that he admires, like Jerry Allen. And we'll certainly do that here. But I also wanted to do something a little different this time. We are in a, a very particular period of stress. So I wanted to get inside your head, dude, about some <laughs> topics bigger than music. I hope that's okay. You are a Harvard professor, after all. <laughs> and you know what they do? They call us to just talk about whatever. So no, I'm glad to be here, man. Thank you for having me. And uh, and I don't know what you have up your sleeve here, but uh, try to rise to the challenge. Right now you're in the middle of a run with your uneasy trio, Linda Mahan-O on bass, Taishan Sori on drums at the shrine that is the village vanguard so i hope people will uh, make a point to go out and support live music and see vijay in this incredible trio This recording, Uneasy, uh, was basically made and released um, with a whole lot of things going on, if we reflect back to that, that time. Uh, Biden was recently elected, uh, obviously in the midst of a vicious pandemic. The themes of Black Lives Matter, uh, prescient, perhaps even more salient than ever before after the insurrection attempt. So I would like to ask you, Vijay, right now, on a meter of uneasiness from one to 10, where are you right now? My God. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's day by day. I guess I'll put it that way. Certainly with the latest surge, it was the Omicron surge I'm talking about. Um, it felt like we might never find our way out of this seeing new york get past the peak of it and that there's hope for some sense of being able to gather again i don't know it sort of softened things a little i did get a little dystopian at the start of the year i would say and i even i think i even posted a twitter poll i said what was more dystopian now or summer 2020 I think that maybe that particular moment, because there was in the midst of the 
beginning of the pandemic, there was also this massive uprising, which is itself the embodiment of hope. The uprising means that people believe that things can change. And that's what the summer was. So of 2020, if we can remember back that far. But basically the, the upshot was that people thought that it was more dystopian now than then. And meaning like before the vaccine and under Trump seemed less dystopian than it did a few weeks ago. So that's like, that says a lot, right? I don't know. I mean, these are not scientific polls. <laughs> it's really like highly self-selecting people um, answering these things, but it's a way to take the temperature at least of whoever we think we are, you know, whatever we mean by us. Who are we in this moment? We usually are leaving out whole swaths of people. Um, so I don't want to paint any kind of absolute picture of things. But finally, to answer your question, how uneasy am I right now? I'm going to say seven. I'm going to say seven. Been way worse over the last two years. I might even say six and a half. No, nah, let's say with seven. <laughs> I mean, me, I'm sure maybe your family, uh, a bunch of your friends, peers, everyone in your life feels like we've all gone through some form of great personal growth and transition within ourselves as we live through all this stuff. Like you said, it is a temperature check. What things have you learned about yourself as a person or as a human right now <laughs> since the pandemic broke out? Certainly I learned that I don't have to be scrambling around all the time. That stillness is a blessing, even in this like anxious form that we've been experiencing it. Those of us who have been fortunate to be confined to our homes, there are plenty of people who are forced to go work and face the onslaught of the worst of the pandemic, you know, people on the front line or to any of the service jobs that have been active through this whole thing. I've been fortunate to be like working on art and, um, and reading books and sitting with my family. I think I learned that I, I need stillness and that I hadn't really given myself enough of it in recent years. All the performances and musical action activities I was a part of and teaching. So that scramble depleted me. And I think I finally like accepted that, that I had actually been kind of damaging myself with this fast clip that I'd been trying to maintain since basically since 2014. reflect on that do you think that's a product of the capitalist music grind system that you found yourself in and not completely aware of um yeah well i mean not aware of i think 
Well, if you were aware of it, you would have obviously just employed that stillness more often in your life. Certainly things aren't going to go back the way things were. You're going to take some of these lessons of stillness and inform them in your future choices. We do hope for that, yeah. But I think the thing about what you identified as this capitalist system <laughs> that we're somehow all a living under you know it's not even whether we consent to being a part of it it's just the it's a condition of living in modernity you are kind of like implicated and and like uh hailed or called into this rhythm of producing and consuming being a breadwinner you know chasing things i would say that as an artist I've not exactly been like somebody who goes for the most commercial stuff. I don't know. <laughs> like I don't, I don't, I'm not exactly what they call a sellout. I mean, maybe there's some, there's probably someone out there who thinks I'm a sellout, but. Hey, you played I, night and day, man. You, you covered yeah, Cole right. Porter. Yeah. Which everybody wants to hear in 2022. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, basically like we interact with different markets, with different marketplaces, you know, being an artist, being a musician means that you're in the marketplace of gigs, you're in the record business, you're in the music publishing business, um, and that like you have some kind of profile in each of those spaces or markets, and your worth in those markets is some measure of your desirability in very crass capitalist terms. So like yeah, you end up that ends up speaking through you and governing the choices you make, even in ways you don't want them to. I think I can say that like certain things I do become more sellable than other things I do. You know, like I can do projects with Mike Ladd or with Teju Cole, but those are not the ones that sell copies, <laughs> move units, or sell tickets in the way that run of trio shows does so i guess i'm mindful of that that i actually participate in these different markets and then the other thing i do is that i write music for classical musicians and i've been doing a lot of that lately too i'd say it's like a good half of what i do now These worlds are so distinct from one another that people in one world are not aware of that, of, of what the other world is, what I'm doing in this other world, you know? So that's, that's an interesting dynamic that uh, these markets are quite, not just distinct, but almost disjoint, you know, like they don't, inter they don't intersect that much. definitely hear elements of stillness throughout this entire record, even in, in the most uh, up-tempo stuff. Um, but if we were to slow something down with a piece like Augury, it feels like uh, a meditation. 
a realization of oneself. Let's listen to that. So with a piece like Augury, you said the most soothing healing music is often born and situated within profound unrest. Conversely, the most turbulent music may contain stillness, coolness, even wisdom. Was this piece composed during a time of distress for you? I think what I can say about that piece was that it was a, a spontaneous and very intuitive outpouring at the piano. At the time that we recorded, I just, I mean, I sent Linda and Taishan home at the end of the session, and then I just lingered for a while and recorded a, a little bit of solo stuff. <laughs> just, and I didn't know what it would be or whether it would amount to anything. It was really, in retrospect, I found that I wanted to put it at the center of this album as a kind of a point of rest. I'm someone who still thinks in terms of the arc of an album, although I know people kind of for years now have been just kind of spinning off individual tracks. So everything's about tracks and playlists and stuff. And I still do think about albums as a whole, as a, like an arc of experience that carries me, but also carries the listener. I remember this phrase from Don Byron, actually. He was talking about composition. The Idea. clarinetist that we all yes. love. Yeah, he said, how do you take care of the listener? And that's a real potent way to put it. You know, because it it involves you in a relationship with the listener in a way that's not abstract. You know, it's very intimate and tender. Um, another thing that I was reminded of is like when we did that project, holding it down, the Veterans Dreams project, with Mike Ladd, the poet. Before I went to Iraq, I died. And the whole members of the host 9-11 veterans community uh, and particularly veterans of color so we were basically dealing with a lot of traumatic stuff you know like people talking about dreaming of suicide or, or like having stressed ptsd uh, dreams that are not quite dreams but actually just reliving traumatic experiences from combat so it's quite harrowing you know and then to put that in context of a performance it's triggering you know it's like it can be harmful both for those involved and for those witnessing you don't know what someone's gone through who might have walked in the door what are they carrying and what are you dragging them through so we worked with this director named Patricia McGregor, uh, fantastic, very accomplished, very spirited and soulful director, human being. The phrase she used is, if you open the wound, you have to close it. There might be moments of like real, almost unbelievable intensity 
But then how do you bring someone back from that? Speaking of turbulence in the literal uh, idea, configurations is, to my understanding, surrounds this idea of art created in the midst of motion or kinetic energy or other things around you. I would just like a few scenarios of Vijay Iyer creating music uh, in with with turbulent motion around him and what those recollections were and how it informed your work. <laughs> it's funny, um, the kind of stillness that's required to just sit down and write something, you know, that can seem like the opposite of what you're talking about. But then there's also like what we do as creative musicians, as people who make stuff spontaneously. And that is often where it's about kind of like trying to tie together or trying to like be a center in the midst of what might be a lot of swirling energy. Often when you're in the midst of an ensemble, then what you the kind of choices you make as a player need to serve that. And certainly as a pianist, that's often what a pianist's function is, is some kind of like bonding agent, some kind of like way of uniting all different sides of what's happening. And it's because we have, as pianists, we have access to a wider range than most other instruments. The instrument radiates in a, a different way. It's, you know, not many other people in the group have an instrument that's more like a piece of furniture, <laughs> you know, like a, that one that's like really not portable at all. Like most people are playing something that like they can carry with them. The drummer is a bit of a different story, of course. And actually the piano is more like a drummer. And so I kind of usually find that what I have to do in an ensemble is forge this link with everyone, particularly with the drummer, so that we can kind of stabilize everything that's happening. You are the stabilizer during these uneasy times. <laughs> <laughs> I've certainly, yeah, I've certainly been in like large ensemble contexts where that's sort of like my role. And it's more that than playing some burning solo or something like that. Being community-minded as a player, and how, how do you do that? How do you serve, just like what Don Byron said, how do you take care of the listener, but also how do you take care of the players, you know, the other players? How do you take care of them as you're playing? For that, I definitely look to people like Jerry Allen and to Duke Ellington as like people who did that. You can hear it in their playing, but there's like listening behind the playing. There's this sense of like, doing what's necessary, no more than that. You hear how everything connects, everything, every sound they make connects to what's happening around them.
Will you uh, honor Jerry Allen? Oh, it's almost becoming like a tradition now for you uh, <laughs> on this album, Drummer's Song. Let's listen to that. Vijay Iyer joins us here on the checkout. We're so happy to have him. Is there a certain kind of motion that goes into uh, informing the notes that you play when you're working with a choreographer like Carol Armitage, which basically was the genesis of Uneasy coming in 2011, <laughs> or at least the idea of Uneasy. Mm. Um, that kind of motion going on around you is that is, is it just another uh, point of reference that just informs what you do or does it just is it inherently more challenging do you feel like you have to do more do you have to do less what about settings like that well what i think i can say across the board in terms of any collaboration i've done with someone outside of music is that it gives you it has given me, I can say, um, a much deeper and kind of larger sense of what music does or can do or what it can, what it's for. How it can support movements, <laughs> how it is a space of feeling, you know, and um, in a way like prioritizing that over my playing, you know, as a sort of like soloist or something, prioritizing how the music is working, rising to the occasion, you know, to like support a poet or a film or a dance company. And often what that means is, yeah, it's like ways of moving and ways of feeling. I think those are the main ways. That's how I think about it is like this music offers a way to move and a way to feel in any given moment. Um, that's, those are the organizing principles that we, we can start from as a composer, rather than like, oh, I'm really interested in like Fibonacci numbers and like <laughs> odd meters and polyrhythms and et cetera, like all the nerdy things that we musicians do ad nauseum, you know, which I also still do. I'm not going to pretend I don't do that, but, but I think like, it gave me a sort of reality check working with Carol or working with Mike Ladd or working with Prashant Bhargava or with Teju Cole. Um, just like, okay, what is this music actually doing and why? <laughs> Besides just saying, look, Ma, I made a piece. You know, like that's not enough.
working with Carol, Carol Armitage and her company, the piece called Uneasy. That's the title track on this album. You know what else is on there is the title track to Echella Rondo. So both of those pieces were like intended to offer a certain framework for movement and for feeling. And we were on stage with the dance company. And so then it was like, can we move with them? Can they move with us? Can we arrive together? And what does that feel like? And then it was also about like, what in that moment in 2011, does anything feel like, you know, like what, what did we want to put out into the world at this moment and particularly to do it in New York in Central Park summer stage, which is where it happened. You know, and to me, like that was the time of, uh, that was Obama's first term. It was also 10 years after 9-11 and having been in New York since before that. A lot of good vibes in the air. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, it's yeah. I mean, that's basically why. You know, we were picking up on a sort of like general dread and, and anxiety. Look, we were like years deep into this global war on terror. The U.S. was at war on two fronts and you would never hear about it in the local news. It's like nobody wanted to acknowledge this like mass death and like mass suffering that was being enacted in our name but against our wishes. Um, so that's the sort of thing, like under the what seemed like patina of relative prosperity was quite a lot of difficult truth. tunes shift gears back to the music i do hear uh um some nerdiness from you in a composition like retrofit specifically and what you're doing rhythmically here at the very beginning um it reminds me of dilla a little bit uh and which is why i, I mentioned this is because uh jazz united with nate chanen and greg bryant will be speaking with the author of dilla time the life and afterlife of Jay Dilla, written by Dan Charnas. I'm cited in that book. Did you know that? Oh, you are? Yeah, yeah. There's like two or three pages about me in there. It's a little Easter egg for you. You'll find it. That's so crazy. Well, I guess you'll have a lot to say uh, about this um, question. Did Dilla normalize or advance the concept of rubato as it pertains to popular music or all kinds of music across the board? Rubato? That's not the word I would use. That's not the right word. I'm not sure I would use that word. I don't know what the right word is or the wrong word is. It's like <laughs> most people don't know what that means anyway. So, um, well, but it, to me, it just means, uh, yeah, fluctuation of tempo to meter as well and just anti-rhythmic consistency <laughs> um well how deep do you want to get the deepest always with okay. you that's why i bring you on the show <laughs> come on man okay uh my dissertation is about this 
Rubato is not the right word. When I say like, I'm not sure I would use that word. Actually, I would never use that word to describe this, what you're talking about. In fact, I, the reason I wrote my dissertation was so that we would have other words to talk about this. And this is why I'm cited in the book. Rhythmic expression in like Western classical music. Like if you hear, um, dun, 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 <laughs> that kind of thing. Like I, that's a, what's called a ritardando. It's expressive timing that's used in Western classical music to emphasize something formal in the music. Like this is a cadence, you know, like this is where something is happening that matters, okay? The way they do that in Western classical music is by changing the tempo. And in that case, slowing down. But that's not what we do in any music that's meant for dance or like groove-based music, basically black music of the 20th century and beyond, but also music all around the world that's organized around a steady pulse, around tempo not changing you know and so like what it means then to be rhythmically expressive in the context of steady tempo what it means to be expressive around a steady beat like if you think of a rapper like busta rhymes or uh, who's another example doom is a good example too love mf doom yeah Some so peace. like you listen to the their relationship to pulse those two are good examples sometimes it's very on but often it's very it's expressive is he still a fly guy clapping if nobody ain't hear it and can they testify from in the spirit and living the true gods giving y'all nothing but the lick like two broads you know it's like move it seems to be behind the beat often uh, but it also has this way of kind of pushing and pulling. But the beat is not changing and the tempo is not changing. So that's what I wanted to study. It's like, what is that? Not just with MCs, but with piano players, with saxophone players, with drummers. How is that working? And what do we call it even? And so. Well, what rubato means in classical music is actually like no tempo, or <laughs> it means like free tempo. It means that there's no steady pulse at all. All right. It's usually a kind of like soliloquy or like a, a solo solo kind of thing, like a cadenza or something like that can be like as fast or as slow as you want. Keep changing the tempo. No one cares because no one's playing with you. <laughs> it's usually that kind of thing. No one's tried to synchronize with you. That's when you play rubato. All right. But that's not what's happening in these cases. The terms that I developed, that I started using in the 90s for this was like expressive micro-timing. To be distinguished from expressive timing, like the ritardando or accelerando type things that you see in classical music, because that's on a different order than what's happening here. When you have a steady pulse, then it's like real fine-grained rhythmic movement around the pulse. So that's what I call expressive micro-timing. And Dan adopts that term in the book because of that. So the question was about Dilla. Did he make that more available in popular music in the last 30 years or something like that? I'd say yes. I mean, I remember the first time that I probably noticed it was 
some of those tribe albums from the early 90s like midnight midnight marauders but then i guess i remember several years later when voodoo came out d'angelo's album um what was that 99 i think right and uh that's a band doing that you know like yeah. doing doom, 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 doom. the super lazy oh always slowing down thing well yeah it felt and it was like the way that the horns sounded in relation to that beat you know see like i wouldn't use the word lazy because it's actually like quite consistent it just feels lazy, I meant. It was, yeah, it maybe offers a feeling of relaxation. That's what I would say. Okay. Um, but it's like, it, because it's go. consistent, right? Like it stays there, which means that it's being held there, which is not lack of effort. You know, it's actually, this kind of stuff is informed and it's precise. And the, there's a whole tradition of it. You can identify across the ages of recorded music and particularly of black music in the 20th century. You can hear all kinds of instances of it, whether it's- Duke Ellington. Yeah, Billie Holiday, Lester Young, Ahmad Jamal, Thelonious Monk. Lester Young's a good one. Yeah, it goes on and on. Uh, Zigaboo Modaliste, many, many, many examples. James Brown. Then, it, of course, it continues into hip hop, which is sampling all of those people I just mentioned anyway. Uh, and then it becomes kind of like uh, a technology, you know, it's, it beca it, because it's implemented through digital means, you know, through like hands on a machine. It becomes part of the, the lexicon, I would say, the, the vocabulary, the way that we feel rhythm. Yeah, I, I guess like the, the Slum Village albums are another great example where Dilla was like right in the center of all of that, of course. Well, we've already um, reached our time allotment, unfortunately, but obviously I love talking to you. This is uh, always a pleasure of mine, um, talking about this stuff. In general, it feels like us collectively were, have a lot of holes to dig out of, for lack of a better metaphor. What gives you most hope these days if things can change? Actually, I mean, this sounds super cheesy to say, but it's true that the generation of our children, like my daughter is 17, they are so sharp about so many things. They've learned the hard way and have come in direct contact with exactly what's wrong with the world they're being brought up into. And there's this very sharp and clear critique coming from that generation that 
you know, the sooner they have power to act on what they're thinking and what they see, the better. So like, that's what I have to look forward to. Like my daughter and her friends having political power, having um, a say in what's, what's, what our future is. Uh, because they've learned not to trust us. Like they've learned many times over. Between like electing Trump and ruining the planet and like not acting on gun legislation even when people like them are killed in cold blood you know that kind of stuff like they've just learned that adults are not the answer to anything <laughs> so so like as they come of age and and are able to act on the world in a coherent way i am hopeful and uh, in fact i'm i have faith that they'll help us vjr thank you thank you simon Good to talk to you. There are always so many things to check out when it comes to Vijay Iyer, including this record, his ode to Tribe Called Quest, Mystic Brew, on his album Historicity from 2009. And of course, most of the music you heard on this episode, Uneasy, featuring Vijay Iyer and his trio with Linda Mahan O oh on bass and Taishan Sori on drums. Both of those musicians, in their own right, are incredible. In fact, we made a show about Taishan Sori in our archives, if you would like to find that. And we definitely need to invite Linda O oh on the show very soon. In fact, I know we, we've tried many times, it just hasn't worked out yet. And of course, the reason why we're doing the show in the first place, the Vijay Iyer Trio continues their run at the Village Vanguard through Sunday, January 30th. And if you just want to do a deep dive into all things Vijay Iyer, just go to his website. He has all of his music, including his classical compositions, right there. And one more thing to check out, a reminder to subscribe to Jazz United, where you can hear Nate Chenen and Greg Bryant's conversation with Dan Charnas, the author of Dilla Time. Make sure to follow them and follow us on social media. At Checkout Jazz is our handle, both on Facebook and Twitter. You can find me on Instagram at Simon Rentner. The Checkout is a production of WBGO Studios. I'm Simon Rentner. Thanks for checking us out.